One thing we need to let you know about this morning, uh, some of you would know uh, Juanita Miko. Uh, she passed away on Friday. Um, we don't have any uh, word about arrangements yet. Fred's going to meet with them this week. A uh, longtime member here, I believe a member of the Crusaders class, is that what you told me? So uh, please be in prayer for, for her family and, uh, and friends, and let's do that now. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom we have to uh, gather together this morning. Um, God, we know that many of our brothers and sisters today have to meet in secret or are wondering if this is going to be the last time they get to have church. And so we just ask uh, your strength and comfort into their hearts. Thank you, God, uh, for what we have here. We pray that we'd use it well uh, for your glory. We pray you'd be with the Miko family, Lord, as they uh, grieve Juanita's passing, Lord. We're thankful that that, that grief is tempered with hope, uh, grateful for her faith, Lord, and, and just uh, pray your blessing and comfort on them this week. Uh, help us today, God, as we study your word. Open our hearts and minds, break down the barriers that we might uh, in our flesh put up against your spirit speaking to us, and, uh, and speak through me, God, to your people today. It's in your name we pray, amen. About 15 years ago in San Francisco, um, someone was uh, tried by a jury of their peers, found guilty of second-degree murder. What had happened is that their dog had mauled a neighbor and killed the neighbor. Jury trial, uh, the jury found this person guilty. But in California, there's a law that says that in order to be found guilty of murder, you need to have had the mental state required to commit murder. And a dog can't. <laughs> and so the judge threw out the guilty verdict. They countermanded the, what, what they, they did. You know, the, the, the jury had said, yep, they're guilty. And the judge said, no, you can't do that. And threw it out and acquitted the person of this crime. Now, here's the interesting thing. The judge can do that. You can't go the other way. If the jury finds you innocent, the, the judge can't flip it and go, nah, I think they did it. <laughs> uh, that has happened one time but only in one case where someone, like the defendant, paid off somebody in the jury, and they were able to prove it, and so the judge was able to reverse it. That's like once in all of American law that happened. But a judge can overturn a jury's guilty verdict and make them the person innocent, which the only question I have from that trial is not, you know, how in the world did the dog do that, and how could the jury... I want to know who that person's lawyer was. Like, it's their job to know the law. <laughs> like, you should know that part, right? That the dog can't... Anyway, um, I still have questions about that. But there are, there's another trial that happened much, much longer ago that I have questions about too. And the jury handed down a guilty verdict and the judge overturned it. We're going to look at that trial today. This is when people are still talking about. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 1. It's in your Old Testament. Uh, if, you're, if you're turning to it, it's about, about a third of the way back, okay? So uh, book of Job, uh, chapter of your Bible app, you can find it there. Um, I will tell you, if speaking of Bible apps, if you use the YouVersion app to follow along with us on Sunday morning, uh, there's going to be a lot of information on the screen that's all in the app, okay? So if you use that YouVersion app, um, you can log on and, and you can get it on your smartphone, your tablet, and find Chapel Rock. And so a lot of what you're going to see on the screen for you note takers, it's going to come pretty quick, okay? So you might want to have your phone ready if you want to get a picture of stuff. But you can also find it in the app, okay? Um, 
So we're going to be looking at Job today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name's Casey. If I, we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you. If you're new here, please come down and say hi when we're done. For those of you joining us online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate those of you who do that. If you're local to Indy, please come visit us on site. We really think that there's something special about just being here and rubbing shoulders with everybody. And no matter whether you're online, you can do this later. If you're here in the room, uh, if you would take a second, fill out your connection card. Just leave that in the seat next to you. We'll collect them later. But that helps us care for you better. That would be great. On Mother's Day, I talked to the gals and let the men over here. Today, I want to flip that. So I'm going to talk to you guys and let the ladies over here, okay? Uh, I want to talk to you about a man that the Bible calls Job. Now, we don't really know a whole lot about this guy. His name, as far as we know, is not a Hebrew name. Uh, he's gonna, we're going to read about three of his friends. Um, they don't have Hebrew names. It's going to say that he was from the land of Uz. We're not totally sure where that is. The table of nations in Genesis chapter 12 would list it in kind of um, modern-day Iraq, but it's the, the northern part of the Fertile Crescent, um, kind of on the way from Israel over to Babylon. Um, and we don't know when it was. He describes creatures that sound a whole lot like dinosaurs. They really do. But it talks about people like the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who lived much later. So it, it's just a weird thing. We don't know where it was. We don't really know who this guy was. We don't know when it happened. There's some mystery here, okay? And you need to understand the structure of the book to get where this is going. You, you need to see the structure. So let me kind of outline the structure of the book of Job, because it's probably been a while since you read it in your quiet time, okay? So there's this narrative introduction, all right? It goes chapter one and two. It's story. It's it's. Straight narrative, just telling the story, okay? Now, this is narrative that's been divinely revealed because we get an insight into what happens in heaven's throne room. So it has to be the Holy Spirit revealing this to somebody. We don't know who wrote it. Might have been Job. Might have been one of the guys mentioned in the book. We don't know. Um, but clearly the Holy Spirit's the author because there's revelation about what's happening in heaven's throne room that only God could have known about, okay? Then it shifts to poetry. So it goes from straight narrative, straight story, into this po lengthy section of poetry through the whole middle of the book, all right? And that poetry's in three parts. So you've got Job's dialogue with three friends, Eli Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. We'll re read about that in a little bit, okay? Then you have this fourth guy, Elihu, and he rebukes Job's friends and Job, and we see that in chapter 32 through 37. And then God lectures Job in this wonderful thing where God's like, where were you when I made this creature? And where were you? And he just, like, it's kind of like this divine dressing down of Job. He just lays into him, all right? And you see that in chapter 38 through uh, 40, uh, the, uh, yeah, th the end of 41. And then it, starting in, in Job 42, you've got these brief responses. It's still part of that poetic section. And then in chapter 42, verse 7 through 17, you've got this narrative conclusion. So a little bit of narrative at the beginning, a lot of poetry through the middle, a little bit of narrative tie up at the end, okay? That's how the book is structured. And you need to understand that structure to see where God, the journey God is going to take Job on, okay? That matters. So let's read the text together, the first couple chapters uh, this morning of Job. We're going to read this narrative part. In the land of Uz, again, not sure where that was, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That's the, the very definition of Old Testament righteousness. Fear God, avoid evil. You want to live a righteous life? Fear God, avoid evil, okay? Pretty simple. 
He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the east. Now, this is written from a Jewish perspective, so this is east of Israel. Again, not totally sure where, somewhere east, okay? His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, eh, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Now, this is where it shifts into heaven. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, now the Hebrew text literally says, the Satan. So it, the word means the accuser. So we're already kind of getting into courtroom language here. Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And I want to pause right here and say this. I don't totally understand how this works. I don't get it. There are the things about this I don't get. But there is a red line that God has for Satan that he cannot cross. And, and, and Christians, some of you who are going through a trial right now, you need to know that. Maybe that's all you need to hear from me today, is that there's a line somewhere out there, and I don't totally get how this works, and that's part of the message of Job, but there's a line that Satan cannot cross. God says there and no further. Now we're going to see... Satan begs to move the line. God allows it. Okay, look at this. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking... So you get the pace of this, right? They just happen like this. Boom, 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 boom. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans, that's another word for Babylonians, formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your son's and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they're dead and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. In the ancient world, those were, were symbols of grief and mourning and sometimes repentance. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Listen, I don't know what kind of trials are going to come into your life, but if you can learn to respond like this, you will win those trials. 
It's really, really hard. It's not fun. But if you can learn to respond like this, God gives and God takes away, may the name of the Lord be praised. You'll win those trials. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Sound familiar? <laughs> have you, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. Stretch out your hand, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Satan petitions God to move the line. God says, okay, here's the new line, do not cross it. And he doesn't, he can't. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And that's a literal phrase. He's literally sitting in ashes. That was a symbol of grief and mourning in the ancient world. It's probably also a figurative phrase. His life is in ashes. He feels like his life has been burned to the ground. He's got nothing. Except he's, his wife is still around. Look at what she says. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Thanks, hon. Uh, you know, like, whoa. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Now listen, the word foolish there, he's not calling her stupid. He's calling her immoral. This is the Psalm 14.1 fool. A fool says in his heart there is no God. Foolish here means wickedly foolish. <laughs> he, he's saying, listen, babe, he probably didn't call her babe because she basically said, I wish you were dead. But I mean, like, he's saying, hon, you're, you're on the edge of what's even right. You're, you're sinning <laughs> in saying this. He said, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, by the way, that's the shortest guy in the Bible. It's not Zacchaeus, it's him. Because Bildad the Shuhite. <laughs> you groan, but you'll remember it. <laughs> I know, it's a stupid pre. It's Father's Day, it's a dad joke, get over it. So, um, Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite heard about all the trouble that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Again, a sign of grief and mourning. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now what happens next in this long middle section through Job is this great poetic trial. 
Job essentially wants to put God on trial. There's this dialogue between Job and his three friends. They show up and they grieve with him and they sit with him and that's great. And and it's like, man, what a perfect analogy, guys, of the way you should deal with with the struggles and hardships that your friends go through. Man, listen to me. Sometimes you just need to show up and shut up because we want to fix it, don't we? Well, you know, Bob, your problem is just shut up. You don't know. That's kind of the point of the whole book. You just don't know. What they did was awesome, guys. They showed up. They sat with their friend in silence and griefed with him. And everything was great till they opened their dumb mouths. And it all goes downhill for 30-some-odd chapters. Here's the thing. This whole middle section, believe it or not, is, it gets kind of boring. I know that sounds like, I can't believe the preacher just said the Bible. It's boring. Well, it is. I, it wasn't, I'm, not, I'm just agreeing with John Ortberg. He's smarter than me. He said it's boring. Look, look at this. He goes, this is actually quite deliberate on the part of the writer. There's a lot of action at the beginning. And then there are these endless arguments between Job and his friends. It's a very deliberate strategy on the part of the writer. He, he wants to hit us over the head with the idea expressed in the conventional wisdom of its day. Job, you must have done something wrong. Because if you hadn't, how can you explain your suffering? And it just, that goes on and on and on for over 30 chapters, back and forth. And it does, it gets a little tiresome. The writer wants you to understand how mind-numbingly crushing this can be to the human condition. And so we have these lines of argumentation, and you need to understand them, because otherwise the book's going to feel like it's going in circles. And what you need to realize is that they have different assumptions about who God is. And so I want to track those out for you, okay? So again, these are in the YouVersion app. I'll show you a chart at the end if you want to get your phone ready to take a picture. But but here's, here's these assumptions. So the first person is Job. His argument is, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. And the implication then is, well, my suffering is unjust. And based on that implication, his conclusion is, well, either God doesn't run the world according to our sense of justice, or God is unjust. It's got to be one or the other. He goes, I don't know which, but one of the two has to be true. So you've got, there's the first set of assumptions. Then you have Job's three friends, all right? Here's the argument they make, that God is just, and that God does, so the implication is, well, God does run the world according to justice, and their conclusion is, well, Job must have sinned. And that goes round and round and round and round and round for chapter after chapter. And then you get this fourth guy show up, Elihu. He's the only one with a Hebrew name. His, his name means um, the Lord is his name. <laughs> now, he's given a human genealogy. We don't, his genealogy is listed, but he almost speaks as if he's God. And at the very end of his speech, he's talking about God's power revealed in the storm. And the very next line, the first time God speaks to Job, it says God spoke out of the storm. It's almost as if Elihu spoke it into existence. So is he a person? I think, definitely I believe so. Um, does he, is he the, is he the divine, like the one speaking for God? Yeah, he is. And maybe he was even the author of it, because he says, I'm younger. <laughs> he says, I'm younger than the four of you guys, Job and his three friends. So I waited, and here's his argument. God is just, but we're limited. 
We're limited. We, we don't understand everything. And, and then the implication is, well, God does run the world according to justice, but our limitations keep us from understanding all of that. And so the conclusion is that God-ordained trials that come into our lives are not always disciplinary. Sometimes they are. But they may also be preparatory or for the purpose of spiritual formation. That the reason God allows trials and struggles and hardship and pain to come into our life sometimes is disciplinary, sometimes is punitive. But I think far more often, it's, it's preparatory, it's spiritually forming. And so here's this, this chart you have of, you know, they've got different assumptions. And, and therefore they make different arguments. And the whole thing just goes round and round. And surrounding all of it is this legal language. Over and over and over again, Job uses the language of the court. He, he talks about bringing an accusation before God. He talks about arguing his case before God, defending his actions before God. He talks about being vindicated and acquitted by God as his judge. In fact, one whole chapter, is like th- chapter 31, is basically Job's closing argument in his court case of his own defense. Now, a lot of you Christian guys, if you've struggled with pornography, you know Job 31.1. Job 31.1 says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. You probably know that one verse. I hope you know that verse. You need to know that verse if that's been your struggle, if that's been your trial. But you probably don't know the rest of the chapter. I didn't. (laughs) Because the whole rest of the chapter is Job saying, if I had done this, fill in the blank, whatever it is, that whatever sin you want to put in the blank. If I had done this, I would be guilty of this. I would be deserving of this punishment. But I didn't do this. So this is unjust. Back and forth. All the rest of Job 31. It's kind of his closing argument. And then Elihu speaks. And he starts telling Job, Job, there's a lot you don't know. There's a lot you don't know. And then God speaks out of the storm. And he says, where were you? when I created, I don't know, gravity? Where were you when I flung the stars into the sky? Where were you when I created this creature and this creature and this creature and the behemoth and the leviathan, these massive creatures that exist simply to give God glory? He goes, you, 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 you can't tame them. You can't tame nature. You don't, Job, you just don't. There's, you're so limited in your perspective. Ultimately, what happens is Job thinks he's going to put God on trial, and then God puts Job on trial. And Job is found wanting in that respect, that he just doesn't understand. His his perspective is too limited. See, God never really answers Job's questions. And guys, I want to tell you this morning, you may have these questions about why you're going through X, Y, Z. God may never answer that. He may not tell you, but what he tells Job, I think he's telling you today. He said, I still love you. He says, Job, I still love you, (laughs) but you don't have the whole story. And Job repents of that flawed view of God. Look with me at the the very end in Job chapter 42. I want to read this. This is is kind of the, the happy ending. Look at this. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? 
Job, Job goes, that'd be me. <laughs> Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now look at what he says. Look at this. My eyes had heard of you. Or my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has which is tough for modern audiences to read some of what Job says about God. And you're like, God doesn't find any fault with that. Like, that's, that's a jagged pill to swallow sometimes. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who'd known him before came and ate with him at his house they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Now, did you notice that's doubled from what was before? It's literally doubled. So pay real close attention in the next verse. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. He didn't have 20 more kids. He had 10. The implication is you can replace livestock. You can't replace a kid. That, that was not doubled like the rest. God cares for and concern, is concerned for children. That's why your baby bottles are due back in today. Because we need to share that concern to help people care for children, even the ones who aren't born yet. The first daughter, he named Jemima, the second, Keziah, and the third, Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. That was unheard of in the ancient world. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. See, we are not privy to what happens in heaven's throne room regarding us. We only know about Job because there's a divine narrator that God revealed it to somebody, maybe Elihu, we don't know. All of us face trials, though. And how, guys, listen to me, how you respond to trials is the third most important factor in whether or not you are a godly man. And yes, I'm ranking them. It's the third most important, the way you respond to trials is the third most important factor in whether or not you're a godly man. The number one is this, are you in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you accepted Christ as Lord and Savior? Because you can't be a godly man without that, no matter how hard you try, it just doesn't work. You won't, it just, it's spiritually impossible, all right? Especially on this side of the cross, you can't do it. So if you haven't done that here in a little while, we're going to sing and you have an opportunity to come forward and accept Jesus as Savior and Lord and begin that walk of a godly life right? The second most important thing is, are you walking by the Spirit? Paul says we can walk by the flesh or we can walk by the Spirit. 
If you're walking by the Spirit, then God is going to turn you into a godly man. The third most significant factor in whether or not you're a godly man is how you respond to trials in your life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because understanding Job's trial equips us in how to deal with our own. And there are two essential truths that you need to accept in order to win when you're on trial. All right, here's the first one. All right, we don't want trials, but we get them. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? Yeah, we don't want them, but we get them. How many of you are familiar with the Babylon Bee? Anybody? A few? Okay. So it's a satirical Christian news like thing. Okay. They make fun of the news, all kinds of news. I love this. Scholars, this was last month. Scholars now believe Job's friends were first year seminary students. <laughs> Listen, here's the article. A group of Old Testament scholars are now claiming that Job's friends had just enrolled in their first year of seminary when they came to comfort the biblical figure for his horrible losses. Job's friends' irritating lectures, incorrect theology, faulty assumptions, and inability to sympathize with Job were indicators that they were, in fact, seminarians. I love this. Like a fa- it's a fake quote, but it's in the article. You can see, by the way, they have no idea what they're talking about. Keep blasting Job with truth bombs instead of just listening to him that they were clearly in their first year of training for ministry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, it's rough. And these guys show up and they just keep talking. And l- listen, guys, I just want to tell you, if you have a friend who's going through a trial, just show up and shut up. Just be there. Just love them in the middle of it, okay? But here's the thing. Job is not just going through one trial. Job is, Job is actually going through five secondary trials and one primary trial. So I just, let's just catalog these, all right? Guys like lists, right? It's kind of our thing, like lists. So we're going to make a list of these five trials that Job is going through. Now, they're all secondary. Here's the first one, number one. He is going through a financial trial. Job has lost his wealth and any means of producing more wealth, right? It'd be one thing if he just lost all of his flocks and crops, but still, like, everything was okay. He can't even make more money. It's just... It's just done. It's all gone. It's all burned away. And you can read about that in chapter 1, verse 14 through 17. And then his lament for this, he just, he's grieving this loss. He says in chapter 6, verse 13, do I have any power to help myself now that my success has been driven from me? He's having a financial trial. Some of you in here are in a financial trial right now. Lost your job, credit card debt out of control. You identify with Job. Now, we read in chapter 42, verse 12, God restored that two, you know, twice over again that God restored it, but he had to go through a really rough trial, right? The, the, the second of these secondary trials is a family trial, right? He lost his children in a terrible accident, all at once, all 10 kids, all at the same time, all right? We see that in, in, in chapter 1, it starts, mentions them in verse 13, and then they, they die in verse 18 and 19, and he laments them in chapter 27, verse 14. He says, however many his children, their fate is the sword, his offspring will never have enough to eat. He's lamenting the loss of his kids, and then we read that he had 10 more children in chapter 42, all right? The, the third one is a health trial, all right? His body is being destroyed by illness. We read about that in chapter 2, verse 7 through 8. His lament for it is in chapter 30, verse 30. Look at this. He says, my skin grows black. Now, we need to say in 21st century America, when you use black and the word skin in the same sentence, you need to understand what, what he means. He's not talking about you, our brothers and sisters, whose skin is, little dark, is darker than mine, Okay? He means like this black, like from infection. It's, it's that, okay? My skin grows black, not brown, actually black from infection and peels. My body is burnt with fever. And, and his body is restored, presumably, in chapter 42, verse 10, all right? Then the fourth trial he goes through is a marriage trial, all right? His wife basically wants him dead. I don't know if there's insurance money or what. I don't, I don't know, but um, 
Let's just curse God and die, she says. You know, I mean, it's so encouraging. Thanks, babe. That's just awesome. Um, you know, look, look at his lament for this. He says, my breath is offensive to my wife. I have, now, this is not just morning breath, guys. This is like his body's falling apart. I'm loathsome to my own family. Now, say, Casey, she was never mentioned in the restoration passage. So how do you know that that was restored? Because they had 10 more kids. <laughs> Pretty sure things are okay, right? Um, <laughs> all right. And then the last one is a friendship trial. His friends are arguing with him. You see that in, in, uh, in chapter 2, verse, or, well, it's really chapter 3, verse 37, the whole thing. And then it, he laments it in chapter 19. It, to them, he says this to them, all my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. And then in chapter 42, not only are they, their relationship is restored, I think that their foundational restoring his wealth. It says they brought him a piece of silver and a gold ring, and I think he uses that to kind of rebuild his financial empire. All of those things are secondary trials. They're not the big one. Here's the big one, guys. Here's the big trial that Job is going through. He thinks he knows better than God. And ultimately, he's got to learn the proper perspective and the right focus. That's Job's trial. That's what he's going through. And I guarantee you, because I'm a guy, some of you do the same garbage. I didn't tell you to wear your steel-toed boots today, sorry. You do the same stuff. You think you know better than God. That's the trial Job's going through. Now I know in a group this size with this many men, some of you are going through at least one, if not more, of those trials right now. And in a little while, we're going to give an invitation, and I'm going to have our elders come forward, and they're going to be down here front to pray with you. If you're going through one of them and you want someone to pray with you, we're going to have an opportunity to do that here in a little bit. Some of you, you want out. You're like, how do I get out of this? And even if I can't get out, just tell me why I'm going through it. I can't answer that question for you this morning. Job doesn't get his question answered this morning. So my encouragement for you is this. The only way to win that trial is to look for the way that God is forming you in the midst of it, how he's shaping you. In 2014, David Brooks wrote a column for the New York Times called What Suffering Does. And basically his conclusion is that when we talk about our past, when we talk about the places that have shaped us, we don't tend to talk about the good stuff. We talk about the struggles. Then when we talk about the places in our life where we've grown the most, we don't talk about those blessings. We talk about the hard things. That's what makes us grow. Job was righteous, he didn't sin, but he still had something to learn. And so that's the second truth that we need to accept this morning, that God wants us to win. Guys, listen to me. God wants you to win, so he trains you. He wants you to win the trial. He wants you to win the struggle, so he trains you. See, this statement about Job that God makes to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, seems like twisted and borderline sadistic to us until you understand what's going on. God is not like nominating this one that he loves to get the snot kicked out of him by life. God is bragging on Job to Satan. He's saying, listen, I know you're, you think you're a bad dude. You got limits on you too, buddy, but that guy loves me no matter what. He's bragging on Job. He wants him to win. He, so he's going to train him. He's going to allow him to be disciplined for a while. Allow him to be trained so that he can win this trial.
there are believers around the world, I prayed for them earlier, who are going through a trial. I want you to understand, you, you, you had an opportunity this morning to wake up and decide to come here. You could bring one of these with you in your language. And you didn't have to be afraid that the cops were going to come bust down your door tonight because you went to church. Some of your brothers and sisters do not have that freedom. And they pray for us. God wants you to win. And so he trains you. Sometimes he even disciplines you. Some of you are going through one of these five trials right now. And it may be God shaping you to be the kind of man he wants you to be. See, that's what the, the writer of Hebrews taught. Look at this with me. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us. Some of you didn't. I get that. He's speaking very generically. Who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? They, our human fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. If your dad overdid it or underdid it, here's proof. They're not always right. My kids are in the room. They can tell you. But God disciplines us for our own good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God allows discipline into your life to train you to become more like him. He's telling Job, Job, I love you, but there's some stuff you just don't get yet. You just don't understand yet, Job. And like Job, Jesus didn't do anything wrong, but he went through the Father's discipline. He endured the ultimate trial. And he was able to pass the test because he had a right view of the Father and a right view of himself. See, listen, guys, listen to me. When God puts a man on trial, he does it in order to give them a perspective bigger than himself. I, I want you to hear me. Please hear me. I'm going to put this on the screen. If you take notes, write it down. Most, if not all, of the trials we face are either because our view of God is too small or our view of ourselves is too big. I'm going to say that again. I really want you to get that. Most, if not all, of the trials we face are because our view of God is too small or our view of ourself is too big. Here's what I mean. Sometimes our view of God is too small. We sin blatantly without any concern for grieving the heart of God and we blow it off as the way I deal with stress. We ask for puny stuff in our prayers and, and are quite happy when God gives us the greasy cheeseburger we ask for instead of the half-pound porterhouse he'd like to give us if we just had the guts to ask. We content ourselves with a daily email devotion scanned hurriedly at a red light in traffic instead of leading our family in reading and memorizing the word of God. Our view of God is too small. Or... Guys, our view of ourself is too big. We let frustration and anger build up in our heart, and then in our home, we explode on the ones we claim to love because we just don't know how to deal with a world that will not bow to our wishes. 
We arrogantly assume that life's heartaches and struggles are some personal vendetta of invective hate of the universe against us instead of the natural consequences of living in a fallen world or the, the, the normal results of our own stupid choices. We decry the sin in society and we're afraid to shine a light on the darkened corners of our own hearts because we're not really that bad, right? Our view of ourself is too big. Or God forbid we have to deal with both. And so because our Father loves us, He allows or sends, depending on the situation, trials to come into our life to teach us how to win the trial. See, that's what I want you to get this morning. You need to get that. That's the big idea today. Here it is. Look at this. You win the trial when you get a vision of the Lord that's bigger than what you had before and when you get your focus off yourself. If you're here this morning and you're going through one of those five trials and you want to win, what you need to do is you need a bigger view of God and a smaller view of yourself. You need a bigger vision of who God is than you had before you walked in here today. And you need to get your focus off yourself onto him and then let that overflow out of you into others and then worry about you. And for us, we see this truth through the lens of Jesus. His perfect life and his teachings and miracles and his sacrificial death on the cross for us, his resurrection and ascension, his ongoing intercession for us in heaven as our advocate, legal term, is what points us to, in this direction. It helps us understand just how big God is, but also gives us handles on it so we can get a right view of ourselves. You see, before the author of Hebrews tells us to endure discipline, he says this in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, about halfway through. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Guys, that's what you need to do today. You need a bigger view of God and a smaller view of you. And if you'll do that, you will win the trials that God is allowing to come into your life. And so today, my invitation is very special and very specific. I, I initially want to talk to you guys. Now, we're going to sing a song. It's kind of long, all right? There's a point in the middle where I'm going to talk to you again, and if, if it's for anybody, but just initially, it's just for you guys. And if you're going through a trial of any one of these five things, all right, and maybe it's a, a financial trial, all right? Maybe it's a health trial. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's something with your family. Maybe it's a conflict with your friends or your coworkers. I don't know. It could be anything. But if you're going through a trial right now and you just want someone to pray for you and pray for you, pray over you, I'm going to have our elders, you guys, why don't you come on down now as we start to sing. I'm going to have you stand with me. And initially, you men, if, you're, if you just want someone to pray with you, you come. And, and then in a little bit, we'll open it up to everybody. But you stand with me and we'll sing together this morning.